The Word of God says in Exodus chapter 24, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and ate, and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain, and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone, with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I know we just read a large portion, the entire chapter 24 of Exodus, but this is such a pivot point or such a, uh, a vital uh, marker in the history, both of Israel, but also of theology as a whole in scripture, as we understand the ratification and the ramifications of a covenant being established. And so that's what's happening here in chapter 24. We see the establishment of this covenant between the people of Israel and their God, Yahweh. And so I would like to call this episode Dinner with God. Dinner with God, because that's exactly what's going to happen. And we're going to see that that is a part of this covenant process, the, the ratification process that's taking place. Now, going back just a little bit, let's, let's set the stage with an illustration. Our world has a plethora of disagreements, discords, and ultimately war. But imagine that in the midst of one of these conflicts, the parliament, the senate, the, the established government on both sides of the conflict come together and they pass a unanimous resolution. And I'm telling you, it's all over the news. The, the peace is evident, the joy, the relationship, the fellowship between the two parties. And they have a state dinner together and they're at that table and they're celebrating the establishment of 
of this covenant between the two peoples. Well, imagine all that takes place. And only six weeks later, the most grievous, the most outrageous, the most obnoxious attack happens between one side and the other after the establishment of this peace treaty or this covenant between the peoples. Well, we would say that would be uh, crazy. Not that it would be impossible, but that it would be crazy and that it certainly would be uh, a devastating um, effect on the, those two parties' relationship with one another. Well, that's what we're going to have here. You see, what we're going to see in Exodus 24 is this establishment. Now, now the, the, the covenant has already been clearly not only presented, but many parts of it, have, the, the, the process has already been in play. Well, what's happening now in chapter 24 is it's the sealing of that covenant, the sealing with blood, which is, as we'll see all the way through scripture to the book of Hebrews, such a key component. And so I'd like to look at this chapter from three um, headings, beginning with the covenantal process. Then we'll see a celestial perspective. And then finally, we'll close out with a continuing presence. But let's begin with this covenantal process. And I want us to see it under, under three separate headings, which I'm not going to go deeply into. But we'll see the book of the covenant. We'll see the blood of the covenant. And then we'll see the bread of the covenant. If you look up what is the process of ratifying or the process of establishing a covenant, you're going to find a wide variety of lists with many different numbers on it. And the reason for that is there were a lot of components that could be included in the establishment of a covenant back in ancient Near East times and in biblical times. And you can see examples of different covenants that are established. Obviously, a uh, prime example is the one in Genesis 15 between Abram and the Lord. And, and there's great uh, pictures of the gospel in that Every covenant has pictures of the gospel, but I think Genesis 15 is maybe one of the penultimate Old Testament examples of that. Um, but here, what we see is really what a, a covenant was to look like in that day and, and how man just doesn't keep their side of it. And then you've got other examples of covenants, like one between Jonathan and David, which has a lot of details in that covenant, which do um, relate or could be juxtaposed alongside uh, covenants of the day. But here, three things that would would almost always fall into the covenant process. And so when we talk about the book of the covenant, that's going to come out in a few different ways. But really what I'm saying is the terms and conditions were accepted by the people. Now, we've already seen that in past chapters. In fact, when chapter 24 begins, it's really a continuation of chapter 23. There's really not a break. It starts off with, then he said to Moses. That's not typically the beginning of a chapter. And that's because chapters really sometimes are, are just kind of blocked off and thrown in there. I really don't think that's a chapter break so much. If there really was a chapter break um, right here, I would say it starts in verse 3. But that's whatever. It doesn't really uh, matter in the sense that it doesn't change anything here. But just understanding there's a continuation. And this book of the covenant, God has been saying, this is what I require of my people. And we saw that back in chapter 20 with the 10 words. And then chapters 21 through 23 with this book of the covenant, which was being laid out before them. We discussed that quite a bit in depth a couple episodes ago. But now the terms and conditions. And I want you to notice three times in verse 3. Three, what do the people say? 
All the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then you go down to verse seven and it says he read, he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then, and we will be obedient. And then in verse eight, you've got Moses took the blood, threw it on the people and behold, the blood of the covenant, the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So I want you to see that there has been an, uh, uh, a recommitment per se, not even that, that there was any lapse of time be between the previous commitment. But again, just a clarity. It's almost like at a wedding, you know, you've, you know, the couple's already agreed to get married, but then what do they do at the wedding? They say, I do, I do. At least we hope they say, I do. Uh, I, I do find that when you think about the book of the covenant and this, the, the, the acceptance of it, I think oftentimes of us in, in our relationship with electronics. Um, typically when you get an app or when you are um, signing up for something or what, there is this whole list of terms and conditions. And what we typically do is, is it pops up on the screen and we just scroll down to the bottom and you click the box that says, I agree to the terms and conditions without ever reading all the terms and conditions. So we're agreeing because we want the product, but we don't actually know what is entailed in our agreement of that product that we are receiving. The same thing oftentimes is true in man's relationship with God. In this case, with the, the covenant being established, they agree to it, they check the box, but do they understand what is entailed? Uh, and, and I think the same thing goes with believers in Christ. Now, Praise God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our salvation is from beginning to end a work of God. It is the work of Jesus Christ finished on the cross of Calvary. It's not by works. Why? So that we can't boast. It's completely God's work. But when we come to Christ, when we accept him as our savior, as our deliverer from death, as we accept our inheritance in him forever, well, there is also responsibility now that as we walk with him, we also should live like him. Matthew 16, 24 says, if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. But oftentimes I think that um, when it comes to life in Christ, it's easy for uh, us as followers of Christ to say, yeah, I'm all in. But we're all in without even reading what the terms and conditions are. We're all in without even knowing what is entailed in that new life. And so we kind of see that picture happening here as it's going to be broken in just a few weeks when we get to Exodus chapter 32. We'll talk about that more later on. But this book of the covenant, the terms and conditions, I, I want to make a couple other uh, notes here as we, as we walk through this. Uh, look at verse four. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. This is the first time that we see a writing down of the content in scripture. But I do want to just draw our attention to the supremacy of God's word. And I don't think it can be emphasized enough at this point that this early, this early in Israel's history, when you get to Deuteronomy, you're going to see it many times over about the things that have been written down or write it down, this and that. You see, there was uh, there was a written revelation that the people of Israel were being guided by. Um, and it, it wasn't just a, merely an oral tradition from this point on, um, whether it was even before that at some point, I don't know. Maybe there were other things written down, but here we see it's written down. And so I want us to understand that, again, God wanted this written down. And obviously, God's going to write in stone his words. And so there is something powerful about the written word. And that's what we see here. 
Uh, but but let's keep walking through this. Um, when we come down to verse 5, we come down to these offerings that they're going to offer. In verse 5, he sent young men, the people of Israel, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen an oxen killed. I'm not going to go into much detail, but my days of living in Cairo, Egypt, uh, uh, when when the some of the Islamic feasts, well, specifically one Islamic feast where they sacrifice animals, um, they would kill these bulls in the streets. And I'm telling you, the streets would run red. I've got pictures of it where literally blood just running down the streets into the drains. And I'm talking the copious amounts of blood that come from a bull or from an ox. Um, and, and so this is what they're sacrificing. But the reason I say that is you can't sacrifice a, a, a ox without just thinking, man, that's so much blood. And that is really the focus here that we're going to see is the blood of the covenant, not just the book of the covenant, but the blood. And this is the first time, um, first mention, I should say, of fellowship offerings being made in the Old Testament scriptures, which is significant because it took this covenant for there to be that fellowship between God and man. That The, the fellowship that, that ultimately the picture that's going to one day point us to the fellowship that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ through the ultimate sacrifice, which is that of Jesus' body on the cross, his blood dying for us. And this comes out clearly because in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 18 to 22, this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews brings us back to. He comes back to Exodus chapter 24. It says this in verse 18, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, so the commandments are there, but that's not enough. What did it need? He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so we see again that for covenant to be established, blood is necessary. So we've got the book of the covenant. We've got the blood of the covenant. But I want us to look at the language being used. Look at verse 8 specifically and see if this does not draw your mind somewhere else. Certainly takes my mind to another portion of scripture. Verse 8, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. See, that phrase, the blood of the covenant, I, I, I love that it's there because we see something different when we come to the New Testament scriptures, the new covenant in Christ. What do we see? It's not the blood of the covenant, but we see the covenant in my blood. We see a switch here. Uh, look at Luke 22, verse 20. This is what the Lord Jesus says, and likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. 
not just in the blood. It's not a sacrifice that is detached. It is the very Son of God being given in our place. Not a sacrifice that merely covers sins, but a sacrifice that takes away sins, never to be remembered again. Um, and, and so this, this theme of the blood, we could go all throughout the New Testament scriptures and see this uh, this focus on it that we've been justified by his blood. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We've been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. God made peace through his blood shed on the cross. Um, the one who has freed us from our sins by his blood over and over. And that was just a tiny sampling of many others. But the reason I say this is this is the theme that goes on all the way from the Garden of Eden when man sinned and needed to be covered. And they tried with fig leaves, but fig leaves just don't bleed. And so God prepared a sacrifice for them and covered them there in the, in the skins of animals. Why? Again, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, as we just read from Hebrews um, 9.22. And, and so then Moses takes this blood and you see that it's thrown in two different places, altar and the people. And I do think that that's a symbolism of uh, that, just like you have in in. Uh, Genesis 15 with Abram walking or Abram doesn't walk between the pieces and that's the beautiful picture of the gospel that God does the walking but he he cuts the sacrifice in half and makes a blood path and that blood path is where all would walk through right um, typically when a when a treaty is being made between peoples and they're saying hey if we don't keep the covenant may be done to us the same as it was done to these sacrifices that were killed and cut in half um, but of course the beautiful thing in, in Genesis 15 is God God puts Abram to sleep. He doesn't even walk through the pieces. God walks through the pieces on behalf of both of them, saying this covenant from beginning to end is about me. And of course, that's that, that promise he made with Abram that, that his people would be as the stars of the heavens, as the sand on the seashore. Um, but, but we see the same picture in Christ, that ultimately we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We had no ability, no way to come to him, but God did it all through his son, Jesus Christ. And uh, and so just understand here that as blood plays an important role, it's not just the essence of life. It's also a picture of this end of life. And in verse 8, we it, it talks about him sprinkling it on the people. It's fascinating because the last time that... Um, that or in ESV it says threw it on the people, but that word sprinkle. The last time that this was used, and actually the first time in Scripture it's used, is back in Exodus chapter nine, and I believe it's in verses eight and ten. And that would be the uh, the plague that came on Egypt in regard to the boils. And you remember there that uh, that the dust that they were sprinkling, they were spreading um, from the fire itself. And so we, th this word was used in reference to that. And now we see it being used again in a way of healing, but not a healing from the plagues on Egypt, but now this healing ultimately for their soul. And so this blood of the covenant. So we've got the book of the covenant, we've got the blood of the covenant. But now what do we see? Well, we come to this third part, the bread of the covenant, the bread of the covenant. Uh, in regards to the bread of the covenant, this is a vital because in a covenant treaty, it was absolutely the norm 
that when this covenant was established, a meal would be shared together. And it was a meal showing that peace because you eat with your friends, you eat with those you love. And so this idea that we've come together, we've made peace, let's have a state dinner. Let's have this meal together, sharing a common dish, sharing bread, sharing wine. And so that's really what we see here in verse 9. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But notice the people that go up, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. Maybe these 70 elders of Israel would refer back to Exodus chapter 18 and the whole um, situation with Jethro and Moses needing help and and him appointing these 70 to as judges, maybe the same 70, I don't know, but it's 70 elders of Israel. And then you got named Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. I find this absolutely fascinating that these are the ones that God chooses. Now, we, we, we understand that Joshua is with Moses at some point here as he's going to go up the mountain. Um, but w we find that in verse 13. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua. So I don't know. I don't know if Joshua was um, part of this at this point. If there were 75, there were only 74, whatever the case is. But the ones listed in verse 9. We've got Moses, who later is going to strike the rock again, um, not in Exodus, but he'll strike the rock again, and he won't be permitted to enter the promised land. You've got Aaron, who um, has a lot of disgruntled feelings toward Moses, and there's, there's, there's some conflict and problems there. Nadab and Abihu, his sons, who in Leviticus 10, God kills because they, they offer a, a vain, profane fire before the Lord. This I love this, though. God chooses or God allows these ones to be the ones who sit at the table with him. And what a picture this is really of, of the church. Uh, and when I say the church, what I mean by this is God, like it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says he, it's not that he chose the wise of the world. It's not he chose the talented. It's not that he chose the rich. It's that he chose those who are weak and those who were nothing to confound the wise in the world. And when I see this, what I see is I see a God who relates. I see a God who cares for broken lives, a God who understands our weakness. And I'm so thankful that it's not a whole series of perfect characters that we are to emulate or we are to look to, but rather what we understand is God uses and God works with very broken women and men in scripture. Uh, but, but, but notice, again, just something else here. It says in verse 10, they saw the God of Israel. And then it says in verse 11, they beheld God and ate and drank. I want to start off by focusing on them eating and drinking, and then we'll talk about them beholding God. In the eating and drinking, uh, just, just take note of this that, again, it was common in, in, a, in a covenant process. But we see this even in the New Testament scriptures. We see it a couple different times. Obviously, one we've already referred to, and that is at the Lord's Supper, per se, as we, we sometimes call it later on in relation to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But back in the Gospels, that last supper, and at that last supper, the Lord eats with his disciples. He takes bread, he takes wine, and then he speaks about a covenant. They're sharing this meal together again. But remember, it's not that the disciples have agreed to anything. 
is because Jesus Christ is doing it all. He's finishing the work on the cross of Calvary. He's conquering the grave and forever. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In Revelation 3.20, I think we see a, a picture of this language when we see Jesus saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. See, he wants that that relationship, that relationship where we sit at the table. And whoa, what, what, what beauty that we're invited to eat with the Lord. Um, in Ephesians 2.13, we're reminded, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What a contrast this is. In verse 1 of chapter 24, it says, come up to the Lord. And then it says in verse 2, Moses alone shall come near the Lord. And we know that this is only a select group to start with. Most are off the mountain completely, and they're told, don't even touch the mountain. Don't get close to the mountain. But that's not what we have in Christ. By the blood of Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near just marvelous. The second thing that we see, we've got the covenantal process. Now we have the celestial perspective. And we see that again in verses 9 through 11, which we've, we've looked at. Um, so let's think a little bit about them seeing God, this celestial perspective. And celestial just means belonging to or relating to heaven. So in the celestial perspective, um, we see that uh, there's a bit of a problem. And the problem is that it says they saw God, but we know from other passages like John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. And then we see in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And one more, Exodus 33:20, which we'll come to um, actually very shortly. And, and it says there, but he said, God speaking, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Well, then what do we have here? They saw the God of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. So, so what's going on if that is what is said? Um, is it a contradiction? Is it confusion? Not at all. Not whatsoever. See, to, to say you saw somebody, um, it can mean a lot of different things. Um, it, I, I could see um, uh, the, the, the car of a president pull by and say, hey, I saw the president. Now, did I actually see him? No, I saw his car. But I may say, I saw the president. And again, I'm relating the fact that to his car, I saw the president. Um, you can say that in many different contexts where we say, I saw something, even if you didn't actually see it happen, or maybe you didn't see the details of it. Um, for instance, I saw an accident. Well, maybe I, I didn't see the accident occur. Maybe I just drove by the accident at, you know, 70 miles an hour or 100 kilometers an hour. I didn't see any details of it, but I saw it was there. And, and so again, they saw the Lord. But let's talk a little bit more about why I'm saying what I'm saying. This is not just a, a fancy idea that's got no basis for it. Look at the description that they give of seeing the Lord. So, verse 10, they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. Do you notice the language here? <laughs> there was under his feet 
First of all, the description is under his feet. You see the Lord and all you're going to describe is what's under his feet. Do you get how, how, how out there that is? You're not describing his glory. You're describing what's under his feet. Well, it's probably because that's exactly where they were looking under his feet, the vision of God, whatever it was under his feet. It, it, it wasn't the potentate their eyes were fixed upon. It was the pavement. Now, now, hang on, hang on. Look at their description. Even, even the pavement they're describing as it were. And it says, like the very heaven for clearness. Not even that it was, it was like. They don't even have words to describe the pavement, let alone the one who sits on the throne. I remember years ago, I used to, um, there was this, uh, an elder's wife in our local church in the United States, and I grew up in West Africa, and she would write me letters, and it was really sweet, um, just, and we would write about my garden and other random things that a, a eight, eight-year-old boy would write about, and um, I don't know what her relationship with English is, um, as in, not, not, she speaks English, but as in um, grammar, but she would correct me when I would say something was like, and because I just use the word like a lot, and she would say, well, is it like that or is it that? In other words, when you use the word like, you're saying it's not that, it's like that. And this is exactly how the passage is referring to the description of this celestial perspective. And what are they describing? Well, again, they're describing the pavement here. And I think that's a fascinating thing, a fabulous thing as well. Because really, in this description, we, we, see, uh, we, we see glimpses into other portions of Scripture, like Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. It's very similar, um, where, where it speaks about... Um, I, I, they saw the appearance of his waist, as it were, gleaming metal, the appearance of fire and clothes all around downward from what had the appearance of the waist. I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire and there was brightness all around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Over and over, the appearance, the likeness, the appearance, the likeness. But in verse 26, it says this in Ezekiel 1, and above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire and seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness of the human appearance. And I just love that here in Ezekiel 1, we have this description of the throne room of God. And, and, and it even says the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. Well, now we have the pavement, and the pavement is like that of sapphire stone as well. And so what I, I just want to see, that even the descriptions happening here in Exodus chapter 24 remind us, are related to later descriptions of the throne room of God. There's this consistency in these descriptions. But let me just uh, bring this to a practical point as we um, start to close up. You're like, you haven't gotten to the third point yet. That's fine because that's going to be a very quick closing. But uh, F.B. Meyer, I appreciate the way he noted this. He, he noted that um, eating and drinking are just very normal activities, daily activities that we undertake. And he observed that some eat and drink and do not behold God. Some behold God, and but they do not eat and drink. And some behold God and eat and drink. And, and his point is just very simple. 
but it's that God wants a relationship with us. He wants our life. Whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, as Paul writes the church at Corinth. And so our access to God, unlike here where only certain ones were allowed to come so far and only one was allowed to go all the way up the mountain, of course, Joshua's assistant going partway, that's not our case. In fact, our situation is opposite. We have been invited to draw near to God through the work of Jesus Christ. Our access to God is only limited by our desire, but not by the invitation itself. So we see the covenantal process, we see the celestial perspective, and finally we see the continuing presence. And this continuing presence, again, not much I need to say on it at this point, but we see the Lord says to Moses in verse 12, come up to me on the mountain and wait there. And then he goes on to say that's where he's going to give the tablets of stone. I just want to make a note here. He says, come up to me on the mountain and wait there. Uh, some translations say remain there or stay there. I really like the way that Young's literal translation puts it. He says, come up to me on the mountain and be there and be there. Reminds me of a quote from Jim Elliott, uh, uh, missionary to Ecuador who was martyred um, among the Alca people. And he said this, wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt every situation you believe to be the will of God. This, this is so encouraging to me. Hey, live to the hilt every situation you believe to be the will of God. Be all there. You see, he goes up on the mountain and he's there and be there. Why is this so encouraging? You might be going through a situation where you think it's just that in-between zone. It's a detour. It's a rest stop. It's, it's not where you want to be. But the point is that God wants us to be where we are. In other words, uh, be faithful at that place where we are. We're going to see, or, or we can see very clearly here, that when Moses goes up, what does he say to Aaron and her? Or he says to the other people in verse 14, he says to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let them go to, go, go to them. They are called to also be there, but they don't stay there. They don't do that be there part. And that's why we're going to see a golden calf constructed in Exodus chapter 32. Sometimes in that waiting period, we get antsy. We want to move on. We want to do our own thing. We want our own time frame. And then what happens? What happens is instead of waiting on the Lord, instead of being faithful where he's put us, we miss the opportunities of the moment. And furthermore, we get distracted from the preparation that he is putting us through to make us ready for what he has next. And so I want to encourage you, if you're in that situation of going up on the mountain and being there, of waiting there, just be encouraged. There's a purpose in the waiting. Uh, It's very specific. He's going up to receive these tablets of stone. Now we're going to see he's going to receive a lot of instruction too on what it looks like for God to dwell among the people. But this is significant because the reason for these tablets of stone is when there was a covenant, there was a written um, document in that sense, which was given to both parties or sometimes even a copy of that document as well. And, and this is significant because Moses is now going up on the mountain to receive, let's say, that con, I don't want to use the word contract, but that covenant in writing form directly from God. 
Now, it's no wonder that when he comes down the mountain in Exodus 32, he sees what the children of Israel are doing, and he breaks the commandments. He breaks the tablets. Why? Because he says, we've already broken the covenant. This, this contract is invalid. This covenant is invalid because we didn't do our part. Now, obviously, what does God have him do? Go back up, and he receives new ones. Why? Because God is reminding him, this is not going to be a covenant you are faithful to. It's a covenant I am faithful to. Too. And this is the beauty of our God. Uh, so we'll talk about that more as we go. But our time really has evaporated. And so um, just in closing, I, I, I want to make note that there is a beautiful connection between this portion of scripture and when you come to um, the, the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, some of the similar language is used. Um, here you see that he goes and he waits. And then after six days, it says the cloud covered it six days in verse 16. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. That same language is going to be used. For instance, in uh, Matthew chapter 17, and you, you come to verse 1. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And we're going to see a transfiguration that occurs. Um, and who's on that mountain? Well, Moses is also on that mountain, along with Elijah. Um, uh, you can go there and you can see some beautiful connections between the two texts, and I won't do that right now. But what I just want to remind us of is as followers of Christ, we have a beautiful remembrance of um, not so much Exodus 24, but the principles of Exodus 24 every week when we choose to come together and break bread. See, really, what is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is that acting out of the covenant, the covenant that's been established, the new covenant in his blood, a covenant not written on stone tablets, but a covenant written on the heart. And how beautiful this is. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. But why? Because we're not the ones that are maintaining this. We're not the ones that are keeping our salvation. No, we are kept for him until that day of redemption, sealed with the Holy Spirit. And when we go and we break bread, we remember the body of Christ, the one who did the work on our behalf. And we remember the blood of Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We're celebrating that covenant that was made, that new covenant in his blood. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 speaks of this, that the day is coming when the, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So as you celebrate the finished work of Jesus Christ, celebrate the fact that we can come to him in peace, perfect peace, whose minds are fixed, whose minds are stayed on him. Why? Because from beginning to end, our redemption, our relationship with God is perfectly settled, perfectly fixed. Why? Through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. This has been Into Your Bible, and I trust that your heart has been encouraged. You can check out um, our website at www.intoyourbible.org for more resources. Go to YouTube, Instagram, other places to see uh, various devotional materials. 
But remember, our prayer for you is that you would be part of a generation who loves the Word of God and the God of the Word.